0: The midterm elections are right around the corner. And so what is the outlook? It's a major election that will determine the fate of not only climate policy, but a lot of American policy in the months and years and even decades to come. We'll break down what the polls are saying and what the outlook is on this episode of Political Climate, a biweekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and produced in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, the original political climate co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton. Brandon is a clean tech investor, co-founder of Boundary Stone Partners, and climate advocate. Shane is a policy advisor on energy, infrastructure, and environmental policy issues, also at Boundary Stone Partners, as well as our resident expert on all things on Capitol Hill. Guys, it's been a while since we've had uh, time to be back on the pod and I'm excited to have this political conversation with you because we did have a chance to catch up in sidebar on what the outlook was for the midterms and I'm excited to catch it here. I know you guys have some different views on maybe what the outlook is.
1: Yeah, Julia, it's been a while. I thought you fired me. I was nervous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I fired you, Brandon. I just couldn't get on your calendar.
1: Shane's keeping me busy. That's right.
2: That's right. Amazing. You know, it's funny, too, Julia. You know, I don't, it'll be fun to get into this episode, but I don't know if we definitely have different views on what's going to happen. It's more the uncertainty. There's usually a, a pretty decent amount of certainty heading into an election cycle, but this is going to look a little different. The electorate's going to look a little different. And I'm excited to talk about it and throw all of our our uh, thoughts and, and views out there.
0: <laughs> Crystal balls. I know no one really has them, uh, not even the Nate Silvers of the world, but we'll do our best to break down what we're seeing. And you're right. It's it's a wild card election uh, in many different ways, just given where we're at in this moment in time. Uh, and so we're going to get to that in the latter part of the show. There's just two things I want to touch on before then, because there has been some action on Capitol Hill that we haven't had a chance to touch on. First of all is permitting reform. On September 21st, the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2022, the permitting reform bill, was introduced by Senators Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. That bill would have made it easier to build fossil fuel infrastructure and also cut red tape currently in the way of building clean energy infrastructure. These debates around permitting reform go back to the Inflation Reduction Act, where it's reported Manchin voted for the IRA in exchange for help from Democratic leadership in getting a permitting reform deal done. Ultimately, when permitting reform came up, both progressive Democrats and Republicans were quick to voice their opposition to the point that late last month, Senator Manchin actually pulled the plug on his own priority, pulled the plug on his own permitting reform language, which was attached to another short term funding bill. And of course, that leaves us in limbo on how to implement some of the Inflation Reduction Act. Because a lot of technology has to be deployed, 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 and some of that's getting held up on the clean energy side with these permitting issues. But of course, at the same time, fossil fuel supporters would say their projects are getting hung up too. So here we are. No bill has advanced on permitting reform at the end of the day. And so I'm wondering, Shane, maybe to start with you, what is your assessment of why this bill died and and why Capitol Hill couldn't come together and Democrats and Republicans and progressives and everyone to get this done, given there seemed to be something for everyone if you looked at it the right way?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's politics and policy and then also West Virginia politics, which really doesn't matter to anyone outside West Virginia. Um, The pure political element here is that, keep in mind, uh, and I don't want to, to rehash too much history, but... Initially, Senator McConnell said during the negotiations over reconciliation that if Joe Manchin were going to move forward and pass what was then Build Back Better, which has now been enacted as the Inflation Reduction Act, then he was going to withhold Republican support for the CHIPS Act, which is a semiconductor manufacturing bill in the U.S. That was something that was bipartisan, uh, that everyone wanted to do. But um, McConnell was frustrated about the negotiations going on behind the Inflation Reduction Act. So Manchin announced that the Inflation Reduction Act was dead. It wasn't going forward. The CHIPS Act received a vote in the House and Senate with Republican support, was enacted into law. And then Manchin came back later, remember, with support for the Inflation Reduction Act, which is how it ultimately got across the finish line. So McConnell and other Senate Republicans felt burned. They felt like they'd been lied to. They felt like they didn't want to support a process that they thought was no good. And so keep in mind that Schumer's promise to Manchin was this permitting reform bill. That was what he traded in support for Manchin's vote. So I think Republicans thought, you know, they're free to deal however they like. But as a general rule, Republicans did not want to give Manchin a win after they feel like he had done something you know pretty pretty wrong to them. The other political piece is that there's a pipeline in West Virginia, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, that, you know, environmental supporters don't want. Uh, a lot of people don't want. People in West Virginia do want politicians of both stripes. But most people in Congress, House Senate, Republican Democrat, do not care about that particular pipeline. So it was sort of weird to have a permitting reform bill that would apply new processes moving forward, but then just one handout for Joe Manchin. Uh, You know, Senator Lindsey Graham said, if they create a project in South Carolina, you can have my vote, but we're not all lining up here for Joe. So that's the politics. The policy aspect was, and I think this is very real, you know, if you pass a bill that does X, it's really hard to do X plus later. And I think that was what a lot of Democrats were talking about with reconciliation. We don't want to pass a bill that's insufficient. So let's pass the best bill we can because it's going to be difficult to get a second bite at the apple. Uh, We see that with any major legislation. So I think for Republicans, this infrastructure reform bill wasn't what they thought an infrastructure permitting reform bill should look like. It didn't include some of the provisions they wanted, like uh, making it more difficult for third parties to sue over pending infrastructure projects. They had removed some of the Clean Water Act reforms that Republicans are supportive of. Um, So there were things that Republicans wanted that weren't in there. And the combination of those things was just, I think, too much for Senate and House to overcome and, and get sufficient votes, both from Republicans. Uh, and then also progressive Democrats who just didn't want a bill that they thought would make it easier to deploy additional fossil fuel infrastructure.
0: Yeah, no, I totally hear that. Although to your point, I think there was still the ability for, say, environmental groups to sue over pipelines and block them still. But nonetheless, yeah, there could have sped up permitting of, of fossil fuel infrastructure. Interesting that you know, surely Manchin would have known that at the odds of this bill passing after he gave his, you know, approval of the inflation reduction act, that reconciliation bill, you know, the odds would have been tough to get this permitting reform. But I guess that's the deal he made and a bunch of different moves uh, went into that. So I guess it's not surprising at the end of the day, but I do know some clean energy uh, folks who are also disappointed that this bill did not succeed given the challenges large-scale infrastructure is having on the clean energy side. Brandon, do you have thoughts on that and what we need to achieve on permitting reform just more broadly in order to see that deployment level that we need to confront the climate crisis?
1: Yes, Julia, a few thoughts. One, it's ironic to see McConnell all of a sudden care about process. He certainly didn't do that when he uh, wouldn't allow a vote on Merrick Garland, and then allowed a vote, you know, for Brett Kavanaugh so close to the election. So he's very selective about when he cares about process. Mm. Uh, this was a an odd political coalition. You had Republicans joining up with like Bernie Sanders <laughs> and progressives. Uh, so strange bedfellows on this one. Three, you know, I think it's a case of Manchin also being maybe a little bit naive about what Republican support he could deliver. I think he thought he could bring some Republicans along for this. I mean, that is not without uh, logic. I mean, Republicans have supported the substance of this permitting reform in the past. So it's easy to understand why he thought he could do that. But it's proven to be very hard to get Republicans to join things uh, that would give incumbent president a win. And last. I think we do need permitting reform. Uh, We simply are not going to achieve the goals of the Inflation Reduction Act, the climate goals, without getting power from where it's being generated to where it needs to go. And a lot of infrastructure around that on transmission and distribution needs to be either built or modernized. Uh, I'm hoping that we can find a compromise on this because without it, it's going to be hard to hit the clean energy goals that we need.
0: I think this is a fascinating discussion. I would agree that we need to deploy these solutions faster and some reform to the regulations and red tape is part of that. But there's also a broader question about how do you effectively engage communities so they feel like they're part of the decision-making process and not just getting steamrolled. Uh, Then there's also the fact that some of the local opposition is being funded by other industry groups who do not want to see clean energy succeed. And so is that really a genuine grassroots opposition or more of a grass tops situation? Uh, A lot to unpack, I think, there as we think about how to get this right.
1: The substance that I support in the bill personally is having some defined time periods of when to make those choices. I think you want community input. But... I witnessed when I was in the government some of these processes that went on for years and years. And with that uncertainty of not being able to reach a conclusion to the process, it makes it very hard for developers and investors to build out the type of infrastructure that we need if a process can go on without any sort of defined ending.
0: Yeah. Actually, one of the things that they did here in California this past legislative session, which just ended in uh, last month, I think, was past permitting reform at the state level. So the specifically allowed certain clean energy projects to seek consolidated permitting by the Clean Energy Commission, it was kind of a controversial move because of the sense that local communities may not have as much input in the process, but also something I think Governor Newsom and, and the legislature felt was necessary in order to get some of these projects that have been backlogged to start moving again and actually uh, get the projects deployed out in the world. So that is one thing that California addressed on the state level. And I guess we'll be talking about it more because there is no bill at the federal level just yet. So I think we'll all be watching to see if and when it comes back. And
1: the last point I'd make, Julia, is that we've talked on the show in the past about how solar and wind are basically a cost parity uh, with fossil fuels. And now with these tailwinds of the Inflation Reduction Act and the certainty around the tax credits, I think clean energy could overwhelm if you streamline the process. And I'm not as worried about a lot of fossil fuel projects getting built with the long-term CapEx that you need to have for those projects. I'm confident that renewables can compete and win. And so I, I would welcome that.
3: Support for Political Climate comes from Climate Positive, a podcast from Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure the first U.S. public company solely dedicated to investing in climate solutions. With the climate crisis surrounding us, it's easy to let defeatism and complacency creep in, but there's so much to be hopeful for. Climate Positive Podcast features candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and change makers driving our climate positive future. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org.
0: So let's move on to the second quick topic I wanted to touch on here, and that's the ratification of the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. There's a lot of stuff happening in the news. And so this kind of got lost in the mix. But Shane, I know you've worked on this. And in fact, we covered this really closely on the podcast, looking at the issue of short-term pollutants and just how massive of a deal they are for combating climate change. And so the news came out that the Senate... Uh, since we were all last together, had actually ratified that Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which tackles these short-term pollutants, specifically hydrofluorocarbons, and it passed on a bipartisan basis. So Shane, why is this such a big deal, do you think? And how did we get to the point of this climate bill, an international-related bill, which I don't always think of the U.S. as ratifying these types of agreements? But how did the Congress come around to getting this done?
2: So this was a huge deal. And I'll tell you, the way that Congress got it done, and I can give you a tiny bit of history that you referred to, is that it was truly bipartisan in every possible way. There was no downside. Industry was for this because it allowed U.S. companies and U.S. chemical manufacturers to outcompete China. Anyone who cares at all about climate's for this because you talk about how do we address climate change where literally no one feels pain and everyone gets gain. And we could have conversations about that all day. But this is another one of those. So this is one of those truly everyone wins situations. The irony of the whole situation was that in order for the Kigali amendments to be binding, or in order for the U.S. to meet sort of its obligations, we had one of two routes. You had to either have the Senate ratify the amendments, or you had to enact a law that would essentially implement those amendments as written. Because as long as the U.S. is in compliance, whether or not the Senate ratifies the treaty is not relevant to meeting the goals of the Kigali amendments. And so... President Trump was not going to submit a treaty negotiated by the Obama administration to the Senate. He should have. He wasn't going to. He didn't. And so the process started years ago when we were working with a number of of, of industry players, environmental groups and others. So what's the way forward here? Well, the way forward is let's enact a law that will actually have the force and effect of the Kigali Amendment without really discussing the amendment at all. We'll talk about the economic benefits. We'll talk about the environmental benefits. Uh, there were some senators from some states that have heavy industry that leaned in really hard on the Republican side. Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana is an example. That ended up passing with 16 Republican votes in the Senate. Um, the law got enacted, and so U.S. was in compliance at that time. And then it was really just waiting out until we had a Democratic president that was willing to submit the treaty to the Senate for ratification. President Biden did that. Uh, The Senate uh, voted for it in overwhelming numbers, which made a ton of sense because a lot of these senators on both sides of the aisle supported uh, the bill, the AIM Act, when it was uh, initially passed. So this is just a really great story about how everyone can win if we just focus on what we're trying to achieve. Environmental benefits, economic gain, U.S. being sort of the innovative leader in a certain sector... No one should disagree with that, regardless of your political stripes. And so uh, I'm really thrilled. Obviously, um, we're excited that anyone on Earth should be thrilled about the benefits uh, that we're going to have here. And uh, really, really fun story. We talk about so many depressing things in the climate space and so many easy wins that we're not getting. This is a pretty tough win that we did get uh, because we made it easy as a collective. When I say we, I mean the royal we, um, all of us together. And it, it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, we can't overstate the, uh, understate, I guess, the impact of these short-term pollutants, which is what we think of as basically smog. But they have immediate impacts on the climate. And I think we can tackle some enormous amount of the overall climate issue just by going after these short-term pollutants, these hydrofluorocarbons. And we'll include a link in our show notes to that episode we had with Derwood Zelke, who's been an environmental litigator and professor and author and advocate working on these issues for a long time. And he really breaks down why it's so critical that the Montreal Protocol exists and now this Kigali Amendment as well. But let me ask, Shane, do you think this is replicable truly in other areas of climate action? Because this this seems like a unique case where industry was all in on having an advantage to aligning with this agreement, which is not always the case. On other climate issues, you have fossil versus clean, and it's not so simply um, aligned. So is it really replicable?
2: I think it definitely is. Is it replicable all the time? No. But there are several circumstances where everyone wins. Maybe we don't take the time to see that. Maybe we don't take the time to have open and honest discussion. But you know, one thing I forgot to reference, but you mentioned um, the smog issue, is that the Montreal Protocol was initially meant to address ozone. And that was during the years of Ronald Reagan, a very Republican president. They did that. They addressed uh, what was going on with the ozone. And there was just an unintended consequence. And that was that they didn't realize the chemicals they were using to address the ozone issue ended up being very highly potent uh, uh, global warming products. And so it was an honest mistake. And then they went back and remedied it, which is how all policy should be done. Nothing's ever perfect. Technology advances information. You know, new information comes to light. But yeah, I think it's replicable if people are willing to have open minds and say, what problem are we trying to solve? Why are we trying to solve it? Who are the winners? Who are the losers? And if there are very few losers, we should move forward. Nothing's going to have unanimous support ever. And it shouldn't have to.
0: Well, with that, let's turn now to our political discussion. The midterms are around the corner. We're recording this on Monday, October 10th. That means we're roughly a month out from the election, right? And so I'm curious to know what you guys think. You're following this stuff every day. Obviously, it has huge implications for the future of climate and clean energy policy and a lot more. So I'd love to walk through what you're seeing. And I know, Shane, you did put together sort of an outlook on this. And Brandon, I want your thoughts here, too. But maybe just to break it down, Shane, you've looked at the polls. What are you seeing right now as we sit here on October 10th in terms of who will win the House and who will win the Senate?
2: Yeah, I'll give some high level numbers. And then I want to hear Brandon dive in because he's really active in this space. Um, So just as a factual matter, there are currently 220 Democratic House members, 212 Republican House members and three vacancies. So Republicans don't have to do a lot if they pick up seats to take over the House. The Senate, as everyone knows, uh, in painful detail after watching the last two years unfold, is divided 50-50. And of course, Democrats have the 51st vote with Vice President Harris. Um, So that's where we stand. Real clear politics, I like to look at because they average all the polls across the spectrum. And so candidates have a number of reasons for putting out polls that say certain things. Certain organizations lean right or lean left. And real clear politics does a good job of balancing them. What they're looking at is Republican pickups in the House ranging from 9 to 41 seats. Their average expectation is 25 seats. And there are a number of reasons that this is showing up. One is that if you look traditionally historically at what drives outcomes in midterm elections, it's presidential approval rating, it's um, consumer sentiment, it's economic, um, five is not the right word, but but how people are feeling about the economy, economic confidence, All these things drive in favor of Republicans. But what I want to say and leave you with before Brandon jumps in here is so far to date, and there's a lot of time left, that just hasn't played out. When we look at special elections that have happened over the past uh, couple months, there was an election in suburban New York, right outside the city, where all the polls had the Republican winning somewhere between four to eight, but eight was really the average. Even Democratic polls um, showed the Republican candidate winning by about eight points, And the Democrat won by nearly two points. It wasn't one of those races we had to wait weeks to find out who the winner was. Similarly, in Alaska, it is now a blue state for the first time. Now, this may or may not last past November. I don't know. But that is not what pollsters would have expected. It's not what we thought was happening. I know Brandon has a lot of ideas on why this might be. But I just want to flag that conventional wisdom is Republicans should win easily. That hasn't shown up yet. That could be for any number of reasons. But it'll be an interesting year.
0: Brandon, walk us through why conventional wisdom might be wrong.
1: I think you can throw the historical precedents out in this election just because there's been so much macro events that have the potential to upend the election. First of all, like everything in this country, the election is being viewed very differently whether you're a Democrat or Republican. If you're a Republican, you think this election is about inflation, crime immigration. Those things are all very much in Republican favor. Uh, We have had some historic inflation in the last couple of years, and voters are communicating that they're upset about it. It should be a big Republican year for those reasons. But on the other side, if you're a Democrat, you believe this election is about abortion. I mean, having Roe versus Wade overturned this year is a huge macro event. Democrats think this election is about protecting democracy. That's now showing up as number one in the polling with Democrats and independents because January 6th was a macro event. It's not often that the Capitol gets sacked uh, and there's an insurrection. And then the very public hearings around it seems to have penetrated and moved public opinion. And so you have these two different views about whether it's about the inflation or about sort of fundamental rights, democracy and abortion. What are the variables on that? I think there's three. One is the polling could be off. And in the past, it's been off where Republicans are underrepresented. So if you talk to some Democrats, they think that trend could continue where Republicans could have a really good year because they have been undercounting Republican votes in the last couple of cycles. However, The same could be true for Democrats. You could be undercounting Democratic votes just as much as you did Republican votes in the past. And that's because the voter pool can be altered. It can be altered by voter registration. And what we're seeing is a historic amount of women registering to vote in key battleground states. And that's probably because they're motivated by the Roe versus Wade decision. So you could have a massive turnout amongst women that could change what the voter pool looks like to the pollsters. Second, young people. That's another one that could really affect the voter pool. Young people tend to prefer Democrats, especially on these issues like abortion and gay rights, things that people feel are a real jeopardy right now. And so young people turned out, they historically don't turn out, but they turned out in big numbers in 2018 and even bigger numbers in 2020. And if that continues, remember, more than half of this country was born after 1980. So there's a lot of Democratic votes sitting out there with young people that could really move these numbers. And the last one, which is what I want Shane's opinion on, is what I call the 25% of the Republican Party that's not MAGA. So 75% of the Republican Party, they're voting, they're turning out, they're really motivated. But you have this slice of the Republican Party that let's call them the Liz Cheney version of the party. That is uncomfortable with how extreme the MAGA Republicans have gotten on things like just fair and free elections and peaceful transition of power, right, which we did not have. And you have these 300 candidates across the country that have embraced Trump's lie that he won the election. And there's a certain segment of the Republican Party that knows that's not true, that knows that Trump lost and is fearful that what the outcomes could be for how stable our country could be with fair and free elections. So Shane, what is this 25% of the party going to do? If it were, what do you see, if it comes down to an election denier and a Democrat in a a general election, what are the non-Maga Republicans? How do they approach this?
2: Yeah, I mean, Republicans are gonna turn out and vote Republican this cycle. And that wasn't necessarily true in 2020. And I can talk about myself specifically, but the the reality of it was Republicans had complete control um, until 2018. And 2020 was sort of, it was a presidential year. Obviously, Trump is one of the most controversial, if not, he's definitely the most controversial politician of my lifetime. Uh, I won't say ever, because I know that many people have lived uh, many lives before us. So there was a lot of reason for either Republicans to cross over or some Republicans to stay home. I think in this case, the truth is, there aren't a lot of Republicans running for office, at least the ones that I know, or when I know their teams, or I know people that are involved with them who really believe a lot of the things that they're saying the reality of it is is
1: that so that means they're just lying to the
2: american people no i I think i mean look every campaign is based on several claims uh some of which are not true and i don't care what side of the aisle you're on but the reality of it is no one wants to get to the point where they can't have the conversation they want to have so let's say you're a republican who wants to talk about fiscal policy restoring normalcy even to the party, but to the country, a lot of things that most human beings of either party would agree with. The first question you get asked is like, who won the election? And people are just trying to not have this conversation. Or are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? A lot of Republicans, and I would guess a lot of Democrats, but I don't know this, don't want to run on the issue you want to ask them about. They want to run on the issues they want to run about. And so they just have to discard those questions that catch headlines or give half-answers or quarter truths to get to the, the, the real issues that are dealing, you know, families like mine are dealing with every day. That's inflation, that's a lot of other things. And so for me, obviously, you know, I only vote where I vote. And so I know the candidates who are running and I, and I have a level of comfort with that. But I do think Republicans will come home. I think what's really interesting is, more interesting to me than, than your question about MAGA is, does candidate quality matter? Because in the past I would have said candidate quality does matter, but we've got some races and I'll give you examples. Kelly versus Masters in Arizona, Hassan versus Bulldog in New Hampshire, Warnock versus Walker in Georgia, Fetterman versus Oz in Pennsylvania are the ones that I'm going to pull out. As if candidates matter, Republicans aren't going to fare super well in those races. Republicans could easily win three or all of those races. And that would mean that this is an election about party, not about candidates. And I really don't know. I I really don't know what the truth is. And I'm, I'm very eager to find out.
1: Shane, is there a Liz Cheney faction of the party? I mean, she's basically saying, in order to protect our democracy, you have to rid the party of these election deniers and you're better off voting Democrat. Is there a segment of the party that might peel off, even if it's like if it's 10%, that would be a lot. These elections are going to be on razor thin margins. So if 10% of the Republicans agree with Liz Cheney and vote Democrat, that could have a meaningful impact. Or maybe they stay home. You know, that would also have an impact. What do you think the Liz Cheney faction of the party is and what do you think they'll do?
2: I don't think there's a huge Liz Cheney faction of the party because I think a lot of folks think that she is doing brand building rather than house cleaning. I don't actually have an opinion on that. I know a lot of the folks that work for her, they are honest, good people who genuinely want to see the Republican Party restored to its former greatness. So I'm not I'm not making that claim, but but I'm just telling you that there isn't a huge faction uh, that's in that world. But yeah, there are Republicans who are going to stay home or at least saying they will or will, will vote split ticket. And you can see that Georgia is a great example. Look at how Kemp is performing compared to how Herschel Walker is performing. They're not even close in the same polls. And so that means either people are claiming that they're going to split ballots or they're not going to vote you know, on that part of the ticket. But the same poll in certain states shows a pretty significant delta between some Republican candidates and others. And to me, that says that, yes, there are people who say, I'll vote Republican because I'm a Republican, but I'm not voting for person X or I'm not voting for person Y. Uh, and they're comfortable in that position. So that that really could be enough to control the Senate. Probably not the House, but the Senate for sure.
1: That's a fascinating one. I mean, you look at Herschel Walker, whose family had to move six times away from him because they were in fear of him, paid for an abortion. And is running against a Christian preacher. Yet religious Republicans are supporting Ursula Walker. I can't I can't make any sense of it.
0: <laughs> can't finish <laughs> your sentence. It's oh. just
1: it hurts my brain, Julia.
3: <laughs> Political climate is brought to you by Climate Positive, a podcast produced by the pioneering climate investment firm Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure, hosted by Chad Reed, Gil Jenkins, and Hillary Langer. Climate Positive features in-depth conversations with a broad range of business leaders, authors, advocates, and policymakers who are committed to making a difference. Listen to Max Rodriguez, an attorney with Pollock Cohen, unpack the arguments that support the EPA's authority to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act and what impact the language in the IRA may have in the ongoing legal battle. Or find out how Tim Brown, as CEO of Tradewater, scours the globe to aggregate potent gases and destroy them before they leak into the atmosphere. Climate Positive unpacks their guests' personal journeys while discussing the emerging energy and environmental trends that will drive us all toward a more just and sustainable future. Check it out and subscribe to Climate Positive wherever you get your podcasts. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community-choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together, they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org.
0: ask you guys about a couple climate and energy related issues like the inflation reduction act to what extent will democrats campaign on that and what extent will it even matter if they do do you think there's some real positive tailwinds for them given they passed that big bill and that could just be getting their own party to show up if they feel like they did their jobs i don't know brandon do you feel like you're seeing that reflected in voter sentiment
1: because the bill was just recently enacted into law people really haven't felt the impacts of it yet. They're not going to feel the tangible benefits of it in the next month. You know, you're not going to have a massive surge of heat pumps being <laughs> deployed in the next four weeks. That's going to change everyone's minds.
0: But if, if we had deployed heat pumps, for sure, they'd be voting on it. <laughs> <laughs> heat pumps
1: for democracy. Heat pumps for democracy. And all the jobs that are going to be created, you know, I believe, like Obamacare, once it really gets going, it's going to be a huge win for the Democratic Party but just not enough time in the next few weeks for people to feel it on their you know balance sheet for their home but I do think people can understand that hey they they put Democrats in charge young people turned out they had high expectations for President Biden and I think for some of them you can go and say look he's delivered on massive climate bill massive infrastructure bill the chips and science act you know the pandemic response I think you start putting that narrative together and people can get their heads around that. He was a pretty active president. He got a lot done.
0: Yeah.
1: His numbers are not as good as anyone would like. And that's historically been a drag, you know, if, if the if the leader of your party has uh lower approval ratings. But people seem to be bifurcating the way they feel about Biden and other Democrats. The other Democrats are pulling ahead of him. And so that's sort of a new phenomenon, I think people are taking into account Biden's maybe achievements and what the Congress has done to support that, even if they are not sure how they feel about Biden continuing to be president beyond 2024.
0: I feel like some of this is people having, you know, real issues in their lives. And it just seems like the president should be able to fix it. As we discussed on the show in the past, there's only so much power a president has domestically to solve all these problems. Like, gas prices. Like he did use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and free up some gasoline through that avenue to try and ease pressure on prices. There is actually an increase in domestic production here under the Biden administration's orders for fossil fuels. And yet you have something like the OPEC decision recently that they're going to restrict production because they want to make more money right now. And that could cause, you know, all these presidential efforts to be basically not rendered moot, but, you know, less relevant.
1: If the base of the Democratic Party, people of color and young people had not turned out in Georgia in that special election for Ossoff and Warnock that those, you know, nobody thought they were going to win those elections, but people really turned out in Georgia and those two senators won, there is no Inflation Reduction Act without that happening. Right. Those votes mattered. It wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have what Credit Suisse is now saying the bill is really going to be $800 billion. climate spending, not 370. That's their estimate. And so this might be even bigger than anyone even imagined. And that's because people turned out in Georgia. So their vote mattered. I think that's what Democrats have to make the case. They have to say, look, your vote mattered. Without you, none of this would have been possible.
0: Yeah, I think because one of the big aspects of the IRA is that the tax credits don't have caps on them. You can just keep using them for the Mm -hmm. next decade. So that could mean that the impact is actually larger than we originally thought. To your point about young people, some of the folks who were VIPs at the Inflation Reduction Act ceremony uh, last month in D.C. were these influencers. The Biden administration had 20 TikTok stars and Instagram influencers at the White House, and that was the audience that he spent like, yeah, that was you, right, a Julia? Big chunk of his day. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Follow me at JM Piper. Why? <laughs> uh, no, definitely was not. I can't me. tell if
2: you're serious. And now I really want to look it up and find out. <laughs> the JM Piper <laughs> piece.
0: <laughs> uh, that is my Twitter handle, but I was not on the influencer crew. But it was totally. I want to know if
2: you were a TikTok influencer, is what I'm trying to figure out.
0: I have one TikTok that did well until it had a music licensing issue and got taken down. It was about get out the vote, mind you, in Canada. So, influencers are clearly an audience that uh, the Biden administration is going after. And take your point on Georgia, those two senators, that's how the IRA got done. Since then, we've also had this debt relief conversation um, that the Biden administration has acted on. I think that might get them some support, and maybe Democrats more broadly. Uh, but Shane, to you, do you think the IRA itself will have an impact or also reference their gas prices? And do you think that that good old gas price debate could end up just throwing everything else out the window and people just see that price at the pump and say, nah, president's not not working for me?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I, I'm obviously not a Democratic strategist, but if I were advising a Democrat's campaign, here's what I would say. If inflation starts to recede and energy prices go down, you should run on the Inflation Reduction Act and make the case that we did something and it made a difference. Uh, if inflation tends to go up, uh, you might sound a little silly going home and telling people, I voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, and they'd get pretty you know angry with you at town halls. And so I think just what's going on in the economy on a macro level will probably inform how much Politicians talk about the legislation that's been passed. the The gas price thing has driven me nuts in my entire adult life because it doesn't matter what party your president's in. When gas prices are going up, they say it's out of a president's control; it's macroeconomic. When gas prices are going down, they say, "Look, I did it." And so you have literally no credibility with your voters, and that's not a knock on Biden; that's a knock on every single president in my adult life. Uh, so that's the one thing because presidents really don't have a lot of control about that. <laughs> um, second. I don't even know why we pretend like we can do anything about it. Like, oh, let's allow, you know, and this is politicians on both sides of the aisle. Let's pass the NOPEC bill where we can sue OPEC for antitrust. Well, they're not a U.S. company, so we can't sue them for anything. Uh, it's obvious. And and that's why every administration, including the Bush administration and the Obama administration, got their legal advice that said this is, is it's good political messaging, but it causes a lot of problems in international affairs and actually has no practical impact. The gas price thing is one of those things that you can message around it all you want. There are literally no tools. Uh, an SPR release of 60 million barrels covers about three days of U.S. consumption, which isn't going to have a material impact on gasoline prices. So Shane, I would just avoid that like the plague if
1: I were a Democrat. What do you think about pulling troops out of Saudi Arabia and uh, refusing to help you know, support them after what they've done with cutting production? I mean, they are clearly meddling. They are aligning with Russia, right? I mean, why are we – is this something that could be bipartisan that Democrats and Republicans get together on? I mean, why are we supporting this dictatorship, horrible human rights? They have all this leverage with oil. The quicker that we move away from it, the better off we will be. We won't be subject to their whims on how they want to meddle with us and align with Russia. Like, what do you think there?
2: Yeah, I really do think it could be bipartisan. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, you know, international affairs has never really been bipartisan. And I think we're getting to a point where the generic American, pick your party, is more focused on... Well, it
1: used to be in the Cold War, it was bipartisan. Like, we we spent like half a century trying to oppose the Soviet Union in a united way.
2: I'm more thinking about in the Middle East. Republicans were more hawkish and Democrats were more dovish. And I think even Republicans don't have a lot of appetite to engage in the Middle East in the way that we used to.
1: Well, unless you're Trump and Jared, and you're like, cutting business deals with NBS.
2: Well, like you're talking about individual humans. But if you look at sentiment, mm-hmm. the, the the Republican sentiment behind having a huge presence in the Middle East is not what it was in the Bush years, you know, by any means. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear a lot of people say, whether you're in Ohio or California, why are we spending so much money overseas for people who aren't doing us any help? And we have so many problems here at home. So I actually do think that piece of it can be bipartisan. I think we're becoming a more protectionist country generally, both in an industrial way and international affairs. Separate and apart, you know, Republicans and Democrats view energy policy very differently. Democrats think that we shouldn't rely on overseas um, you know, oil producers because we have renewable energy here at home. Republicans think we shouldn't rely on overseas oil producers because we have lots of oil here at home. Regardless of which way you pick, uh, there, there seems to be some agreement that we have energy resources at home. That we didn't have when we began such a huge reliance on countries in the middle east
1: but we can't refine all of this stuff right because it's a different type of oil so we have to import
2: yeah i mean there's efficient markets and so you you want to send heavy crude where it can be refined into the largest number of distillate products Uh, you want to send light crude where it can be refined for the cheapest amount possible so there's certainly a benefit to having global oil markets for sure but there are probably ways to do it that are more efficient. Or you could, if you really wanted to make an industrial policy, you could upgrade your refineries to be able to handle heavier uh, types of crude. I mean,
1: which would just lock in those greenhouse gas emissions.
2: Exactly. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not arguing yeah. the case. I'm just saying if if your position is we should be less reliant on them for oil, but I love oil, we can retool factories just like we can to say we want to manufacture batteries here.
1: This move by Saudi Arabia and the alliance you know, with Putin, does that make Republicans more Incentivized to move faster on EVs and such? Do they see the national security angle of this?
2: I don't think so. I, I think the argument is, act, well, I know the argument because I read all the press releases, is identically the opposite, which is we have unlimited oil and gas wealth here at home while we're reliant on China for all the minerals and materials we need to make batteries. Mm-hmm. So that is the exact wrong move, would be what you'd see. Mm-hmm. And I think there's truth to that. I think we need to have more material. Processing and manufacturing here. I'm a big EV proponent, as you know. I drive one, but I also love them. But it is true. We should develop those supply chains here. We absolutely should.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I know we're looking at this through an election lens, but of course, there's geopolitics at play, and it's not just energy at stake. I'm sure people would say that we have to consider our relationships in the Middle East for other security reasons. I'm not defending that, but it's clearly a larger debate um, on how the US conducts itself with our partners in the Middle East and elsewhere. But it's definitely a tense time. And uh, the war in Ukraine is something that is certainly on our minds, although who knows to what extent that will factor into the election. With that, I think we'll leave it there. Brandon, any closing thoughts as we sit here one month out before voting day?
1: No. Are you going to invite me back on, Julia? When when do I get to come on the pod again?
0: (laughs) You're coming back on. I've got you scheduled for the next few. We are going to analyze this election. We got lots more to talk about. Brandon, check your calendar. Shane, any closing thoughts?
2: No, not at all. I think this was fun. And I, and I think we covered some heavy topics, but the reality of it is energy policy is actually quite serious. It's going to get more serious in the coming years and decades. And we're going to have to cover these heavy topics. Every journalist, not that I'm claiming to be one, but I mean, every journalist is going to have to cover it. Every politician is going to have to think about it. These are very real issues that we're going to need to deal with. And I hope people are prepared to engage. How do we onshore supply chains? What, are we, what sacrifices and trade-offs are we willing to make? Do we mine here? Do we not mine here? How do we trade with friendly countries? These things really, really matter if we want to get to a zero carbon economy. And I hope our listeners, I hope the politicians, I hope uh, all of us here are willing to have those discussions and those debates because they're important.
3: It
0: does feel like we're having them in a more urgent way. There's always been people who've been experts in these types of fields of marrying geopolitics, industrial policy here at home and climate change and clean energy and supply chains. But it feels like it's now become more pressing and more at the forefront and so indeed that's why we launched this Arsenal of Clean Energy series with Third Way so if anyone missed that go check out our recent episodes where we discuss this very thing of how the US can be the globe's arsenal of clean energy the way it was the arsenal of democracy 80 years ago in fighting against fascism in Europe can the U.S. be that leader that the world needs right now and kind of strengthen ties through clean energy supply chains and opportunities, economic opportunities, to also bolster democracies and, and allies? So check that out if you haven't yet. We'll leave this episode here. Thanks so much to Kyle McDonald, our editor, and to Maria Virginia Alano, our producer. Political Climate is supported by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and Canary Media. Check us out on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We didn't get invited to the IRA ceremony uh, at the White House, but we do like to tweet, so check. Get it out. Polly underscore climate on Twitter. We'll be back again soon. Hit subscribe if you haven't yet. Talk to you later. Wait, I
1: think we were at the IRA ceremony. What are you talking about? I
0: saw you there. Political climate wasn't an influencer invited to the oh. White House ceremony. <laughs> but Brandon and I were there. Let's give ourselves the props for that. All right, all right. <laughs> Shameless plug for I, ourselves. Was I dreaming that I saw you at the White House? <laughs> <laughs> No, we were there. We were there. We're just not influencers, Brandon. Sorry to break it to you. Well, yeah, yeah, I know that. I don't even know how to get on TikTok. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You'll never be an influencer with that attitude, Julia.
0: <laughs> I'm just waiting for the next platform to come out. I'm going to skip TikTok and jump on, you know, meta whatever and uh, get my avatar going. <laughs> Is that a thing still? We'll stop this there. <laughs>